This is the Hidden White Podcast, episode 626 with Carl Zimmer. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. I hope you're very well, guys. I appreciate you tuning in today, this fine day. It's a beautiful Monday here. I hope wherever you are, you're having a great time and enjoying yourself. Guys, uh, here at the Hidden Why, I'm working on a few different things. My book, The Ultimate Life Map, um, taking a little bit longer than expected. I am going to get it self-published now, um, but I just need to finalize all the editing, etc. before that happens. Hopefully, I can do that by the end of this year. So jump onto theultimatelifemap.com for your updates there. Um, also, guys, yeah, appreciate your support with The Hidden Why. I'm going to look at changing it up a little bit. Uh, time is of an essence with me at the moment, and uh, I need to just reduce the amount of podcasts I'm releasing as well. But I'd love your feedback. I'd love to know what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy, uh, what you listen to and what you don't listen to. So email me at hiddenwhyguy@gmail.com. Guys, today I'm speaking with Carl Zimmer. He is the author of 13 books about science. His newest book is called She Has Her Mother's Laugh. A great book, guys. Check it out in the show notes at thehiddenwhy.com. So in this interview, I talk with Carl about the perspective of how we pass along um, our genes from generation to generation. Or not our genes, but hereditary. Like, how is that working and how does that affect uh, who we are, what we do, how we behave, etc.? Carl suggests that although Charles Darwin played a crucial part in turning heredity into a scientific question, he failed spectacularly to answer it. The birth of genetics in the 1900s seemed to do precisely that. And this is a fascinating conversation, guys. Enjoy the show. G'day, Carl, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So where are we um, speaking with you today, Carl? Uh, I live in Connecticut. Connecticut, Okay. And uh, having a good day so far? I guess it's coming towards the end of the day? Uh, yes, yes. I've uh, been talking with some scientists and trying to wrap my head around uh, some of the research. So uh, it's been been challenging, but, uh, you know, it's it's been, been very enlightening. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about um, your field of work, Carl, what you do, and I guess how you got into it as well. So I write about science. Um, I write a column every week for the New York Times, uh, and I, I'm really interested uh, in different areas of uh, biology, and that can range anywhere from medicine, which is just kind of an applied biology, to you know what climate change is doing to the natural world. Uh, and in addition to writing a column, I uh, also write books. I've written 13 books so far. My most recent one is called She Has Her Mother's Laugh and it's about heredity. Yeah, which we'll talk about today. Uh, it sounds like an interesting read and um, certainly I'm curious to find out a little bit more about heredity and what that's all about and how that, I guess, impacts um, the lives that we live. How did you How did you get into science writing, I suppose? I was uh, just always interested in science as a kid, but um, I didn't really think of uh, becoming a scientist. Um, I was really more thinking in terms of writing, and you know, somehow I would, um, you know, maybe become a novelist or a journalist or something. I just really wasn't sure. Um, and uh, I was fortunate that when I was uh, looking for work after college, um, I uh, got a assistant copy editing job at a magazine about science. And um, okay. you know, I, I got there and learned about uh, learned about the craft, and and uh, I really 
really took to it. And I really, I really found it incredibly uh, meaningful and, and have been doing that ever since. Okay. And what, and what parts is it, do you find it meaningful, the writing? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really remarkable kind of job where you actually get paid to uh, learn something about how the world works hmm. pretty much every, every day. And you can go and visit people to learn about it or talk to them on the phone or read something. Um, and uh, and then the challenge is like once you have started to learn about something, then you need to be able to tell the story of it to other people. Um, and that's that is a you know very satisfying challenge of, of trying to you know tell stories for a broad audience about um sometimes fairly complicated topics yeah absolutely um i, I assume that'd be a great challenge uh, particularly to tell um you know a story that's not tarnished by any uh false evidence or, or science as well i don't know how you sort of navigate your way around that field because obviously science and research, um, there'd be a, a many different studies that you'd have to sort of navigate yourself self through to, to find the the truth, is if there is any truth. Yeah, well, you know, I like to just sort of follow the research um, as it's being done. You know, science mm. is not about uh, – somehow revealing uh, absolute truth like it's written on stone tablets. I mean, science is a process, mm. uh, and there are ways in which uh, people do science. Um, you uh, design experiments. You interpret their results. Sometimes those results don't turn out the way you expected, and then inspires new experiments, new field work. And you know, and then you have you know different people who are you know doing different kinds of research or different getting different kinds of results, and you I get lots of debates and so on. Um, so it's a it's it's just it's a it's an ongoing process, and that's how I like to uh, um, uh, portray it when I'm writing about science. Yeah, great. So, what does a day in the life of Carl Zimmer look like? It sort of depends on the day. Um, you know, there are some days where, you know, I just ha have done a lot of research and it's just time to write and I just uh, just get up as soon as I can and head over to my office in my house and just get to work and just, uh, I don't know, I just kind of look up and it's dinner time. <laughs> you know? All right. um, it's uh, then there are other days where there are more sort of fluid, you know, maybe I'm at a scientific conference and I'm looking around for new things to write about and, uh, you know, just sort of poking my head into different talks or looking at people's uh, research posters. Um, then there are other days where I'm just spending the day, you know, with somebody who's looking for fossils or spending a day with somebody who's wow. uh, injecting injecting genes into mosquitoes and just sort of seeing how they do what they do fascinating stuff and uh certainly yeah would keep would keep your mind open to to many different things which is yeah sounds like a fascinating sort of career path as well um do you have any i suppose and this is a question that i ask most guests towards the end of the show but do you have any practices um to to get you started um before a particular task in the day like before you start writing or before you you know, start your research. Is there anything you do to get yourself in the right space? Um, when I'm 
In the middle of writing, um, I do like to spend a little time, um, you know, cracking open a book or two by writers who I really like to kind of, um, get a little inspiration. Just it's, it's, uh, okay. it's nice to sort of remind yourself of what, um, really good writing looks like. <laughs> and then I, then I put the books down and I try to do it myself. Go back into it. Interesting. Okay. So tell us a little bit about, um, your new book. She has her mother's laugh and why, why you wrote this book. So it's a book about heredity, and yeah. I think that you know heredity is one of these things that uh, doesn't get enough <laughs> credit. We we don't realize its importance enough. Um, I would argue that heredity is one of the main things that we use to define who we are. Uh, it's the way that we connect ourselves to the past and, and define how the past has shaped us. And so I was really interested in trying to trace the history of that. I mean, how did we come to think about heredity so much in this way? You know, why is it that these direct-to-consumer genetics tests and, and ancestry tests are, are these companies are getting millions upon millions of customers now? I mean, there's a, obviously a huge passion for it. Right. And so I trace I trace the history of our thinking about heredity and how uh, and how science has affected that um, and you know I, I I try to then show that you know a lot of the ways we think that heredity works um, is just not true like heredity actually is very counterintuitive and it defies our our intuitions um, but at the same time scientists are gaining this incredible power to uh, control heredity and, you know, very soon, you know, we, we may be facing a, a world where people um, might have the, the ability to, um, you know, pick out, you know, what kind of genes they want in their child. And uh, this is not just science fiction anymore. This could, this could be happening very soon and we need to really have a, a society-wide conversation mm. about the about the ethics of that. How do we feel about that? Is, do, I mean, is it okay to tamper with uh, heredity in this way? Right. Okay. So when we're talking about heredity, we're really talking about um, the passing on of um, previous generations or ancestors um, forward into our generation, and basically that's defining uh, most part who we are as a person. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I really, I mean, heredity uh, may have a different definition depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, and, but I would say that generally, you know, people think of heredity as what is it that you inherit from your parents and from their parents and so on going back in time. Um, and so, you know, we, it, the, the word used to just refer to um, sort of a legal uh, inheritance, you know, what were the laws about the rights and property that somebody, say, in the Roman Empire would inherit from someone who had died? Um, now hmm. we talk more in terms of genes. So instead of saying that you inherit a farm, we say, well, you inherit this gene. <laughs> okay. And right. um, 
you know, but it's it's uh, it's more complicated the way that that the things that define each generation get passed down to the next. Um, and certainly, genes are a big part of it. But you know, we're a lot more than our genes, and uh, there are things that you know generations pass down to each other that don't involve our own DNA at all. Actually, like culture, for example. Okay, so we're talking about um, yeah many many different facets of life that get passed on to the, the next generations, to the future generations. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So how much really does get passed on? Because, I mean, there, there's probably um, some people who would say that, you know, loads of things get, you know, from the, the DNA, the genes, um, and what gets passed on in our genes um, to our life um, is significant, and others would argue that it's, it's not significant at all. Um, and perhaps it's more a constructionist of um, our conditioned experience in this world. Um, what are some of the, I guess, misconceptions around um, heredity that you've come across? Well, I do think that uh, people tend to think about uh, heredity in terms of just, you know, the, the super basic rules of genetics. You know, we're talking about Mendel's pea plants and, and that kind of level of, of complexity where there might you might have one gene that uh, controls one trait, like whether a pea plant is uh, purple or not. Okay. And, and then you can have like a dominant or recessive uh, 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 genes, you know, that, that real basic level of stuff. But the, and it is true that we, we do have some, you know, some of our heredity works like that. Um, and so, you know, with blood type, for example, I mean, the genes involved with your blood type are pretty simple. Um, and there's just one gene and a couple of variants of those genes and that's it. Um, but um, when you talk about other aspects of our, ourselves, things get a lot more complicated. Um, and so, for example, I, one example I talk about in my book is is height. You know uh, yeah. how people end up being tall or short, and you might think that's that seems super simple because height is just a number, you know. But the fact is that. Um, the heredity of height is is remarkably complex. There are uh, thousands of genes that have been found to influence uh, how tall we become in one way or another. Uh, in each one of those genes, you know, only only uh, affects you maybe by a tiny fraction of an inch. Um, but if you take them all together, they can have a very strong impact. I mean, the mm. fact is that tall people tend to have tall kids and short people tend to have short kids. But um, but on top of that, um, even though genes are really important, um, the environment is also incredibly important at the same time. Mm. And so, so you, know, um, you can look at that on an individual level. You know, if a child um, is sick a lot, when they're young or they're not getting a good diet, um, they might have genes that you might predict would make them very tall, but they're going to end up very short. And, and and likewise, if you look around the whole world at average heights, um, compared to the way we were a hundred years ago, the whole world is much taller, several inches taller. Uh, and that wasn't because somehow we all got tall genes. It was just that uh, our environment changed dramatically. And so that we're a, we're a taller species now as a result. 
So certainly there's a mix of, yeah, both the genes and um, the life, the lifestyle that we live, our environment, et cetera. Yeah, and you can't – I mean there's no way to to try to like slice that apart. You can't say, oh, well, is it 50% genes and 50% environment? It's the, – the, that question doesn't even make sense because mm. it's, it's genes and the environment acting at the same time and each being able to have really dramatic effects simultaneously. So again, it's our, it defies some of our – you know kind of simpler intuitions about how, how heredity works. So when we talk about physical attributes like height, um, body structure, etc., I could understand how they can be passed along in genes, but what about some of the other, I guess, intangible characteristics of um, our being? Yeah, well, um, you know, if you look at um, behavior and mm-hmm. different sort of aspects of behavior, um, you can see uh, influence of, of heredity there in, in different forms. Uh, so um, there, there is a genetic um, influence on lots of different aspects of behavior. Um, and you can measure this in lots of different ways. For example, you can look at, um, compare identical twins to fraternal twins or to siblings. You can look at what happens when identical twins are raised separately through adoption and so on. Um, these days, actually, um, scientists are moving beyond these twin studies because it's possible now to start sequencing people's DNA directly. Um, and so, um, you have, um, Companies like 23andMe, which allow customers to opt in to these research studies. Um, and so you can do something like say like, oh, well, some, let's take a look at people who like to sleep in. Yeah. And, you know, just let's we'll take a survey and just say, do you like to sleep in? And mm-hmm. then you suddenly have 100,000 people who like to sleep in and then you have 100,000 people who don't and you have all your DNA and you say, wow. well, is there a difference? And it turns out there is. Wow. It turns out that you can find dozens or hundreds of genes that seem to be where there are variants that are more common than you'd expect in the people who really like to sleep in or, or the early birds, what have you. Um, and the same goes for lots of other kinds of behavior. And it goes for things like intelligence, you know, how you do on an intelligence test, how you score, has an influence from genes. Uh, And we can actually zero in on some of the uh, specific genes now that play a part. Now, each gene has a super tiny influence, and the environment is also still very important in the same way in terms of height. Um, But, you know, at the same time, you know, uh, our behavior uh, is also influenced by the culture in which we are raised and yeah. those cultural those cultural practices those cultural norms and so on those are carried down through the generations uh, and so so again you have these you know several different channels of heredity all working at once in this wonderfully complex process which makes it incredibly difficult to pull it apart and find out exactly what's the you know i guess the more specific cause rather than just yeah it is a combination yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, you know there there are ways to 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 pull out uh, each thread there and 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 examine it closely, but um, then there is 
the problem is then trying to put that thread back into the tapestry and, and saying like, well, how does it really affect people in real life? Um, you know, I, we can, we can look at individual genes that turn up again and again in these studies on the genetics of intelligence, for example, but what does, what does that gene actually do in somebody's body and how does that eventually translate into, you know, how many words someone can remember or what have you, um, scientists really uh, have barely begun to to um, take that full journey. It's interesting. Um, I've got a question on that, but I just want to go back to the sleep. So, I mean, if you look around, um, you know, people, for example, that like to sleep in more, perhaps that's, um, you know, something to do with their gene. I often think that, you know, they can often, you know, alter that by just changing their behavior or, or practicing something different, like setting the alarm and waking up earlier every day. And slowly, over a course of a period of any time, you know, they may start to actually think that they're more a morning person than they used to think. Well, you know, I, that <laughs> that may be possible, but um, but I think we, we, as as there's more and more research on the genetics of sleep, um, I think that I, I really do think that we need to start thinking um, more in terms of just people having different sleep styles and, and, you know, it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, it it can be a challenge, uh, to try to fit in to the sort of the social world where work may start at nine and end at five, Mm. but for people with different genes, but, um, we can't just say like, Oh, well just ignore your genes. And, and, you know, if you just get up earlier and, and, uh, then everything will be okay. I mean, certainly we all would do better if we (laughs) put away our phones and tablets, uh, an hour before bed. Um, I, I'm terrible at that. I mean, mm. I know that I would I would have much better sleep if I could resist that urge. Um, but even even in a world where everybody was doing everything they could to get as good uh, a sleep as they could every night, um, you know, there will be people who simply cannot fall asleep until well after midnight, and there will be other people who actually get really tired very early in in, in the evening. And there's nothing – all it comes down to – I mean, actually, scientists are starting to zero in on some particular um, features of these of these conditions. And it just has to do with our – you know, we have a circadian rhythm, a daily cycle that's, again, encoded in our genes. And if you are – if your body, you know, has a – if you have a, gene, a mutation and a gene that causes you to sort of read that clock incorrectly – or just to say, like, okay, we're, um, let's, uh, you know, the, the the sleep process isn't really going to kick in until well after, you know, it's it darkness has come in. That's just how it's going to be for you, um, mm. you know. Unless we rewrite your genes, that isn't going to go away. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so perhaps the uh, you know all successful people wake up early is a little bit of a, a myth. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy that. Um, I mean, I would bet that you know, I would bet successful people get a good night's sleep, but yeah. um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wake up at six a.m. Uh, to to get that sleep. Well, unless there is something that in uh, early, you know, in genes that actually um, create that type of person that likes to wake up early, um, maybe there is a benefit of waking up early. 
Uh, possible, but I don't think we know enough about the uh, biology of sleep yet. Mm. Interesting thing about what if um, what of our environment or of our culture can influence our genes, and and I mean, what sort of research is around that, and you know, is it possible to alter that um, through a period of time? Well, I mean, there are certainly are um, situations where you might have. Um, a mutation in a gene that can have a, a, a negative effect on you, but only in a certain kind of environment. I mean, there are some studies that suggest that um, there are uh, people who can, um, there, there are certain mutations that can make you at a greater risk when you grow up to have various sorts of psychological disorders. But uh, that risk only exists if you grow up in a household where there's a lot of stress. Um, you know, where where you know you're you're uh, maybe you're being physically or psychologically abused in a household, or mm. it's unstable, or uh, or you you know your parents get divorced or what have you. Yeah. Um, so if you're under that kind of intense stress, then this mutation um, can be very harmful. But if you don't experience that as a child, then it doesn't really kick in. Um, and okay. so, so when we talk about, um, the, the effect of genes, um, we actually have to always be talking about whether, uh, the environment, uh, matters to what those effects are. And in some cases that effect can be really profound. Well, okay. Interesting. Um, you talked about intelligence, um, you know, the genes that um, affect intelligence earlier on, um, and you sort of, you did mention that the future um, perhaps looks like where we can actually choose and select our genes um, moving forward. Um, I hope I've got that correct. Um, if we look for genes that um, signify a level of intelligence and we select those and implant it uh, in whatever way, however that works, does that necessarily, I guess the research is maybe early on this, but does that necessarily mean that that, that person will be intelligent because of those genes or is it still um, highly unknown based on you know all other different factors that affect um, one's being? Well, it, you know, um, this is the stuff of, you know, science fiction movies and also of very breathless headlines in the newspapers. <laughs> But I'm pretty skeptical just because of the, you know, the biology of intelligence is really complicated. And it's not something that you can just uh, uh, tinker with like a, you know, like a Lego set or something like that. Um, you know, these these genes that I mentioned that, that uh, have – seem to have an influence on intelligence test scores, you know, they um, – they might, you know, individually, um, you know, have on average, you know, a, a tiny fraction of one IQ point in terms of an effect. Um, and so if you go to a, a huge effort to, you know, alter uh, an embryo in terms of one of these genes, you, it's it's going to be completely unmeasurable. Um and so, you know, you, you would have to, I would think, change hundreds or thousands of genes at once, which is far beyond anybody's um, capacity to do. And not only that, but then 
the actual the way that that person would actually turn turn out would still depend enormously on their environment. Yeah, uh, and okay. and so you wouldn't be able to predict in advance that aha, you know this this person is going to be a super genius. So yeah, um, so I just you know I I think that there's a lot of value in studying the genetics of intelligence because it it's a it, you you can start to um, get a glimpse at at what's going on in the brain, um, you know, uh, and when we're when we are doing things like solving problems, memorizing things, and so on, and um, that's important just in terms of you know basic psychology, uh, and it's possible also that it might lead to you know better ways of teaching people or better ways of treating uh, disorders. Um, uh, we, we really don't know, you know, just, you, you don't know until you explore. Um, but, uh, I, I, I don't see it as a way of, you know, manufacturing some army of super intelligent babies. Okay. <laughs> what, um, so what, what from your research so far, what, what does the future, um, of, I guess, gene manipulation look like? Or influencing our heredity. Well, you know, I, I think that um, I think that there will be more and more people who will um, who will deal with hereditary diseases um, in a much more uh, powerful way. You know, they some people may um, you know use in vitro fertilization and connect that with genome sequencing and so they'll be able to pick out embryos that don't have um really severe hereditary diseases i i can see that as becoming more and more of a of a common thing um it's possible that in the future um you know that maybe gene editing actually does become a regular part of having kids um you know i talked to one nobel prize-winning biologist who has a very extreme uh, view of this. Uh, he says that we'll look at gene editing of embryos kind of like vaccination in the sense that, like, well, why wouldn't you uh, yeah, give your kids the very best, uh, you know, preparation for life? You know, why wouldn't you give them a gene that would, you know, re dramatically reduce their odds of getting Alzheimer's when they were older? Um I wouldn't rule that out, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of infrastructure there to to make something like that happen. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you can, you, you know, we we have, you know, vaccination has saved millions of lives, and that has taken a sort of worldwide network of doctors and vaccine producers and so on. Um, setting up some sort of network of gene editing f for uh, obstetricians is kind of beyond what I can imagine now. Okay, interesting. So when it comes to, you know, hereditary diseases, um, I mean, is that in relation to all diseases? I mean, are the diseases that are not? Um, how do we how do we look at that? Well, you know, there are, genes play a role in uh, diseases uh, of all sorts, but... Um, it, depending on the disease, it can be a really powerful direct impact or it can be a very indirect one. You know, so there are hereditary diseases um, 
like Huntington's disease. Um, there's there's one gene um, that's involved with that, and if you get one copy, you know, one of your two copies of this gene, if it has a particular kind of mutation in it, you will get Huntington's disease. It'll develop probably in your 40s or 50s, and then you will die of it. What um, is Huntington's disease? I don't even know that. Well, Huntington's disease is a neurological disease. Uh-huh. Um, it it, uh, it uh, involves a sort of a degeneration of the brain. Okay. Starting starting in middle age, um, you know, people are totally normal before then, but then um, it starts to uh, have really um, really devastating impacts. Um, it can lead to uh, severe changes in emotions, it can lead to dementia, and it, people uh, it, they kind of look like they're starving to death um, because their metabolism gets disrupted and then and it is eventually fatal hmm. it, it's a it's a terrible terrible disease and it's only one gene that's involved and wow. just one copy one copy of that gene needs to have the mutation for this to, to happen so potentially other, we could detect that gene in an embryo and and yeah root it out yeah and there there actually are people who who ha, who have Huntington's disease who are using in vitro fertilization to pick out embryos that do not carry that faulty copy of the gene. Um, and that's happening now. Okay. Um, and, uh, but there are other diseases where you have to inherit um, two faulty copies of the same gene. So one example would be sickle cell anemia. Uh, and so you have parent. I write about in the book about how, you know, you have these, you have parents who have, are totally healthy, have no idea that they carry a particular mutation and it turns out to be the same mutation. And then some of their children just, you know, heredity um, combines them in this devastating way. Well, okay. But then there are other diseases where um, inheriting a gene might simply raise your risk of getting that disease later in life. And that that's true for all sorts of diseases, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, and so on. Um, and so if you look at any one gene, um, you know, it, it, you know, inheriting a mutation on it might not be a big deal, um, or it might. Um, you know, people may have heard of the, the BRCA1 gene, um, which uh, has mutations in it that have been uh, linked with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And some of these mutations, if you have them, uh, you have a 70 or 80% chance of getting breast cancer if you're a woman at, at some point in your life. Um, so that's at one extreme. But then you have other genes where you know you, it, uh, mutation might give you an extra 10% chance or 1% chance of getting a disease. So there's a huge range in terms of the impact that genes can have on your, on your health. Okay. What about um, psychologically, like uh, depression and things like that? I mean, could we say that depression, you know, runs in the family? Well, depression does. I mean, it. You know, we can see that it does in the sense that um, uh, uh, there cases of depression are within families, within relative rel- groups of relatives, more than you'd expect just by chance. Okay. And. And that tells you that there's that there is a genetic uh, component to uh, depression. Um, 
that doesn't mean that um, growing up, you know, and having a depressed mother means that you will be depressed yourself. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but scientists are starting to work to look for um, genes that seem to have some sort of role in depression, or at least seem to be turning up in people who suffer from severe depression. And they're starting to find these genes. Um, but it's the same story with intelligence. There are a lot of genes and each one may have a pretty small impact. Um, but if you, the hope is that if you put together these genes, um, for depression or schizophrenia or these other psychological disorders, you might say like, you might start to discover, um, some of the biology that underlies these disorders, um, so for schizophrenia, for just to pick one example, um, there was a study that uh, discovered a bunch of new genes uh, linked to schizophrenia, um, and some of them involve the immune system, which is, seems kind of odd. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> it turns out that um, the immune system actually helps to, to prune away extra branches on neurons in our developing brain. And... Um, Schizophrenia may uh, involve having um, extra branches or, or branches that are not properly pruned um, during development. Uh, and the, so all of a sudden now we have this whole new kind of biology to think about in terms of looking for effective uh, drugs to treat it. You know, maybe maybe if, if you look for drugs that, that – um, influence the immune system, that might actually uh, help uh, people who have schizophrenia. Mm. Yeah, well, fascinating stuff and, and quite deep to, to delve into um, for a novice like myself. But um, certainly, uh, yeah, you've opened my eyes and, and probably uh, the eyes of the audience as well. For, for you, what does this mean as far as the impact it, you know, heredity has on our lives? Because I know you talked about that at the start, and I'm guessing that's why you've written this book, to make us aware of the impact heredity has uh, in our lives. What, what sort of conclusions do you come to, um, perhaps in the book, or, or yeah, would you come to in this conversation? Well, I think that um, we're living in a really remarkable time where you know we can each uh, <clears throat> order uh, up a genetic test and get a glimpse at some of the genes that we've inherited from thousands of years worth of ancestors. You know, even going back to Neanderthals. Um, at the same time, you know, I we have to careful not to, you know, reduce ourselves to just a catalog of genes. You know, we, each of us is much more than that. Uh, and, you know, when we think about um, how the past ha has influenced us and made us who we are, we should think about our genes, but we should think about other things, um, including, um, you know, the cultures in which we were raised, cultures that have been developing themselves for thousands of years. Uh, and so, you know, I just, I, I um, you know, I just, I, I, I do, you know, heredity is an incredibly important thing, but I, I hope that my book will help people to, to appreciate some of the surprises that it has for us. What are some of the, um, or maybe just one or two of, of the most fascinating surprises that you came across in, in your research for this book? Well, you know, one thing that's interesting, I think, is that uh, we 
always think about our ancestors as um, being meaningful to us because of a genetic connection. You know, like we, you know, there, you'll have people who will search for their, you know, quote unquote, real parents. The reality being that um, they inherited their genes from these people. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But the fact is that the the way that genes get passed down in every generation, um, there's something funny happens after a while, which is that, um, you know, if you were to go back, say, 10 generations and meet all those ancestors, about a thousand ancestors you have at that point, um, roughly half of them, um, you would have no DNA in common with at all. You did not inherit any DNA from those ancestors. Um, They're still your ancestors, but just because of the way that our DNA gets shuffled and, and, you know, our, our, and parents pass down just one copy of their two genes to, to each child, um, you just get this process by which, uh, after a while, you know, an ancestor's DNA just sort of disappears from a lineage. Um, and, you know, that's. I think that's just one way in which you know it, we should really be thinking about ancestry and heredity as being more than simply genes. Yeah. Okay. And what does this mean? Um, I mean, maybe. What's your perspective uh, as far as this means on our ability to make choice in life, or our free will? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, certainly, um, you know, the genes that we inherit are going to uh, influence um, how we make choices. Uh, and yet, you know, I think that uh, we, we, we don't need to think of our DNA as, as sort of locking us into doing particular things. Um, you know, where our you know, the, because we are the the product of not just genes but our environment, and because we are have self awareness, um, you know, I I don't think that we should think of ourselves as just you know robots that are being told what to do by some sort of genetic program. So, you know, I, philosophers you know debate about free will an awful lot, and it's, it's something that I. I'm only moderately interested in. I mean, I think, you know, um, I, for me, it just sort of seems that, um, you know, the, the, the science of heredity uh, does not uh, rule out free will. So I think we, we might as well, you know, take responsibility for our own lives as a result. But, you know, at the same time, being aware that um, the genes that we do inherit may actually kind of, you know, have an influence on the way we value things and the, and, you know, maybe put the thumb on, on the choices that we make in life. Yeah, I, I think, um, I tend to agree. I think perhaps, you know, just in understanding it, um, even on a, a small scale, um, like what you've given me today, just understanding it that little bit more, uh, perhaps helps put my life in perspective and a little bit gentler on who I am and, and, you know, how my behaviors, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to take away that comparison factor. So, you know, it, 
being more kind on yourself rather than looking outside and thinking, well, I'm not that way. Um, and I just can't be, you know, like sleep, for example, like I just can't wake up early in the morning. So, um, perhaps it is something more to do with your genes or an environment, et cetera. Uh, and perhaps that will allow one person to be a bit more gentle on themselves and understand that that's who they are, but it doesn't leave them without control at all for, for their direction ahead. Does that make sense? I mean, the part, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, I think that's a good overall way of, of thinking about these issues. Um, the, the problem, uh, that we have, uh, at this point is that, um, it's difficult to talk too specifically about these sorts of things. So, you know, um, you know, if I write an article about sleep in the New York times, you know, I'll get a lot of email from people saying like, well, here's my problem with sleeping. And so can you tell me what gene is not working properly in me or something like that? And, um, and I can't, and, and not only, uh, is it that I can't, but that, you know, scientists who study sleep have not figured out, um, how that, anything that could explain how that particular person is having trouble with sleeping. Um, mm. so it, it, it can be very, we, we really, you know, um, in this day and age where you can get a detailed report on your DNA, it's, it's easy to just expect that that report will tell you everything there is to know about yourself and what your genes, um, are doing in your life. But <clears throat> scientists really don't know that much about our genes yet. Yeah, interesting stuff. So time will tell. Um, fascinating conversation. I do appreciate it, Carl. Uh, I'll stick your book in the show notes. So she has her mother's laugh. Um, so guys, check it out at thehiddenwhy.com. And uh, you've written a bunch of other books as, as well. So um, sure to be checked them out as well with Carl. Carl, I've got some quick round questions that I just want to uh, run through with you, if that's okay. Okay. The first question is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Just writing every day. Um, you know, some people ask me, like, you know, I'd really, I'd really think I'd really like to be a writer, and I just say, well, um, the best thing you can do is just start writing and and do it literally every day. I like that. Good advice. What advice would you give to your twenty year old self? <laughs> um, I would. Uh, I guess I would say, you know, think about, think about what makes a good story. Um, you know, I, in writing about science, you know, you have to put a lot of work into trying to understand the science. And sometimes it's easy to think that that's all there is to it, but really, um, all effective writing is, comes down to good storytelling. How would you define success? Hmm. Um, how would I define success? Well, for me, success is reaching readers. And, uh, you know, when I, when I hear back from readers who have, um, had a deep, meaningful experience reading either an article or a whole book from me, I mean that, I, I can't really think of anything better as a writer than that. Yeah. What one tool, skill, resource, or technique has helped you improve your effectiveness or productivity? Um, well, uh, I would say in terms of writing books, I 
um, switched over to a, actually a, a software that I really like um, called Scrivener. I did that for this most recent book. It's a very long book, um, and so I had a lot of information that I was shuffling around. And it was really wonderful to have a piece of software that was really up for the challenge. I've, I've you know, worked with Microsoft Word and lots of other mediocre word processing programs. Um, but if you have a if you have a piece of software that's really re- designed for writing books, it just makes life so much better. Oh, I'll check it out. Interesting. What, if you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? <laughs> oh, I guess a good steak. Good steak. What activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Um, well, I suppose, uh, I guess it's, a, it's I, it would just have to be um, those those times where I'm watching my uh, kids uh, growing up and becoming becoming more and more adults. That's just it's just wonderful seeing them, uh, you know, emerge into this world. Okay, what? How many kids you got? Two kids, two girls. They're teenagers. Okay, what what one book would you pass down to those children? To your children? <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I am a huge fan of Moby Dick, but I know that, uh, some people like it and some don't. So I would pass it down to them, but I'm, it's not likely that they would finish it. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, what one message phrase or, um, quote, would you tweet or text to everyone in the world? Hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it would be hard for me to to, to distill it down just to one. Okay. And do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose in life? Uh, I think that we uh, can all find a purpose. I don't think that there is one that is sort of uh, embedded inside of us and that's the only thing that we can be. Um, I think we we all have different things that we could become. Um, and I think that the you know, an important part of life is searching to find one of those things. What do you think um, heredity has a role to play in one's purpose in life? Well, you know, um, you know I think that, <laughs> I think that there are certainly uh, things like uh, there probably are. You know, the heredity probably has a big part to play. Let's say if you're, uh, you know, an incredible athlete. You know, um, there, there's going to be, uh, you know, if you just, if you don't have, uh, good genes for being a, an, a, an amazing tennis player, I, that may not be your purpose in life. <laughs> okay. That's a hard question to answer, but well done. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Um, I guess it, it, it means just, you know, being able to, um, you know, being able to try making a difference every day, even when you know that, uh, we have so many serious problems in the world, you know, it, it's what, uh, it, what key, I think it's what keeps you from fending off. It allows you to fend off despair. And what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? 
Uh, <laughs> I don't think I have one motivation under, under, underneath everything I do. I mean, certainly in terms of being a writer, you know, the underlying motivation is to, you know, is, is that you're just always in search for the, for the great story or the, or the great Turner phrase, the, the perfect metaphor. Um, uh, so certainly, you know, I have that, that sort of motivation when yeah. I'm, when I'm working every day. Okay. Mate, it's been a fantastic conversation. How can people best um, reach you and find out more? Uh, go to my website, uh, carlzimmer.com. Nice and easy. I'll stick that in the show notes, uh, carlzimmer.com. Carl, thank you for the uh, insightful conversation. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate connecting. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Guys, check it all out at thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon